Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast. And speaking of music, that song that played me in is entitled Where'd You Put Me? It is from the album Mind Palace Music. And that is from the group At, spelled with the symbol that you type when you say At, when an email address. There's probably a, a name for that symbol, and I didn't bother looking it up. Anyway, uh, I'm doing a two-person interview uh, it's both both members of that. It is uh, uh, Victoria Rose and Stone Phillipsack. I don't know why that I had my tongue got tied with both names, and they're not that complicated. <laughs> but it's one of those weeks. Uh, just to go back to the record, Mind Palace Music. It is an incredible album. Do yourself a favor if you're unaware of it, and you're just uh, hearing about it now. Go to the link in the show notes. Uh, I put a link to their everything, so you can go to their band camp, whatever. Buy the album, stream the album, but buy it first and then stream it so then they get more dough. Uh, it's an incredible album. I heard this song that played in the show. I heard that and was just mesmerized and was like, I need to hear more of this band. I listened to the song over and over. I've listened to all of it over and over and over. It's incredible. It's out on Car Park. And they tell the, we talk a little bit about how they both, one lives in Philly, one lives in Baltimore. We talk about how they created this album, their their history, uh, even their harmonies, and some other, many, many, many other things. It's a really great episode. They're great people. They're great music makers. And uh, I really, and they also, speaking of which, I almost, almost forgot, Victoria Rose is a part of a, uh, she also is Brittle Brian. And uh, that's a great project she has. Uh, the Bandcamp link is also in the show notes, so check that out as well. They're both brilliant people. I'm very honored to have been able to talk to them. And we also talk a little bit about... Uh, we actually talked about it before. It's not in the episode, but we talk about it again at the end. Uh, climate change, and we're all three of us are greatly concerned with... Uh, climate change. And speaking of which, I produced an album with Adam McKay and Sub Pop Records called The Eleventh Hour Songs for Climate Justice. The show, that link is in the show notes as well. And you can, that if you buy that album, all proceeds go to the Climate Emergency Fund, which is a great organization fighting climate change, funding activists, paying their legal bills if they get arrested. Because did you know a climate activist can be charged with domestic terrorism? That makes sense. These motherfuckers dump a bunch of oil into the ocean or our streams and our drinking water and pollute our air. But the people who want to stop that can be charged as domestic terrorists. That's a capitalistic society if I ever heard one. <laughs> That's some fucking bullshit. Uh, so go to the show notes, buy that, uh, and support it. It's a great album. Is the there's a lot of great bands. There's Deerhoof, uh, another Car Park uh, band on there. Cloud Nothings, Death Valley Girls, Phenome, who was last week's episode or a couple weeks ago. Great, it's a great album. So support that, please. And if you a lot of my episodes have a part two, so you can go to themattdwyer.com, which is my website, become a Patreon subscriber. I got blogs. I do blogs about music. Uh, there's part twos. Unfortunately, this episode doesn't have a part two, but uh, early releases, all a lot of early releases, a lot of part twos, some videos, all kinds of stuff. Become a Patreon subscriber. It helps support the podcast, as well as if you need a website, KellyRDewire.com. She did my website. She does my favorite murder. She does ologies. She does a lot of politicians and artists, and she does. So go get a website. I think that's it for my intro. I think. I think I covered it all. Uh, it's been mayhem. I'm moving to Minnesota in less than a month. So soon there'll be episodes from coming from St. Paul, Minnesota. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. And now please enjoy my conversation with Victoria Rose and Stone Phillipsack. <laughs> Did 
the, your album, from at least of what I've heard of it, is fucking great, which I'm sure you're fully aware of, right? Yes. Yeah, Thank so you so much. Thank you. But it it came to my attention too that uh, the road of this album was interesting in a lot of ways. But I heard that it was released as a cassette first before Car Park got on board with it. And, yeah. Uh, and I know you probably have talked about the whole recording of it a thousand times, how you did it remotely, individually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we have. <laughs> yeah, I, I tried not to. But, I, but how did you two become aware of each other? Did you know each other from the scene or did you meet at a party? Or how yeah. did you two meet initially? Um, kind of both of those, I would say. Yeah. Um, well, we lived in the same city for... Uh, you know, I guess a handful of months. Um, yeah, so you were there for like in Boston for like less than a year, but um, yeah, we were kind of in the same music scene and we just became aware of each other and we weren't working on music together when we first met. But then around that pandemic, we reconnected and started texting. And then I think, um, I don't know, Stone had been sending me just a ton of his electronic tracks that I was just, just to listen to and maybe give feedback on, or just to have someone to share them with. And, um, that continued on for a while. And then one day I sent a track of my own to him and said something about, you know, wanting some, some kind of soft drums on there. And then he offered to do it sent back. I agreed. And then he sent back the track that I had sent him with overdub drums and some other stuff, some more production, and I didn't, I didn't like it at first. And then, but well, that's because I hadn't had anyone collaborate on my music before. And then it kind of grew on me. And then we just started working on more and more stuff until we had an album's worth of music. I, when, so you are, your other projects, which I can't even, uh, is it Flory? Just because I can't read my hand. Right. Um, I'm, in, I'm in Flory. Um, I'm more of like an auxiliary character in that project though but i do my own solo stuff and had you just been afraid to or hesitant to collaborate before i mean it's not easy i've collaborated and it's fucking a nightmare and then i've had it be where it's like a magical romance yeah um not it wasn't any sort of active fear it was just always easier to work by myself i had all the privacy you know, I, I was allowed myself all the privacy in the world to just, you know, record a thousand times and overdub a thousand times. And the music I was writing didn't really like sound good in a traditional band format. Um, I had sort of played around with a few people and it didn't sound so good. It sounded kind of like talent show music or just like, you know, run of the mill indie rock. Um, so I just decided to keep working by myself just feels more natural was there a point along in the process where you guys were uh, that's my chicago and coming out where i say guys but where you were like we are working on an album or was it just you and you distinctly made that choice um i don't know if there's yeah i don't know when that moment was it was sort of this it went from like, I don't know, maybe like a split to an EP to an album, just as we started to accrue material. I don't remember when we decided we were just going to turn it into a whole record. Oh yeah. I think there might've been like a week or two where we were thinking it might be a split and just like feature featuring on each other's tracks type of thing. Yeah. And then it became, it'll be an EP. I remember that. And then it became more of an LP. I don't remember who 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 put, yeah. who put out the cassette initially? Yeah. Um, one second. I have. It was a tape label called Nine Seven Three Three Inc. They hit yeah. us up on like Instagram, kind of just total strangers on the internet type of thing, and offered to put it out. And at the time, it was just like a Bandcamp release essentially for us. And so we were like, sure, yeah, put it out, like for sure, mm-hmm. you know. Because I've heard from some people I know in like the Philly scene, Michael from Dear Dear, and he said people were obsessed with it, and he said it was. <laughs> this is true in Philadelphia. 
As far but as I think I, that's more of that's more of the digital than the tape. I would say I think Spotify had way more to do with people's obsession with it than like the the cassette tape, in my view. Did you did it start like ending up on playlists and that usual Spotify hoodly do? A couple, um, but no, uh, just kind of spread through. I mean, we shared it on Instagram a few times and. I'm sure like friends of mine shared it with friends of friends and it just kind of spread mostly through social media and then maybe word of mouth. Cause it's, yeah. I mean, the, the first song I heard was uh, where'd you put me? And I was just, it's got that thing where I was just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> I was almost uh-huh. angry. It was so good. <laughs> wow. uh, but thank like, you so much. It's like, but then every song I've heard off of it, and I haven't heard the whole album, obviously, unless I was in Philly, then I would have. But like, it's every, it's just one of those things where I keep want, I, I keep playing it like obsessively, and wow. it's do you, do you have that sense that you created something this? I don't want to say catchy because that don't, like magical. It seemed like there's a magicness to it. I had that sense when we were recording it and we would send each other tracks and then something would be finished and I would listen over and over. And I was very excited. Um, and other than, yeah, I mean, I knew it was going to be some good pop music. <laughs> Whether or not it felt magical, I don't know. And I was happy with it, which is enough for me to feel that way. Are you usually happy with your work um if i'm putting it out i'm happy with it Mm -hmm. but anything i'm not i leave i keep to myself yeah do you ever go back and the stuff you don't really that you're not happy with do you rediscover it and find yourself being happy with it at a later time no because i don't usually finish writing songs i don't like oh yeah i just because sometimes i've learned like I don't write music but I write and I've worked on some shows and when I've some of the stuff I thought was the like I would have to present it to the room and I would be like this is fucking garbage I'm gonna get fired (laughs) and then it was turned out to be the better stuff I've done and I don't know what that critical voice was that was beating down maybe it was just my great midwestern (laughs) self-esteem maybe but uh, have you ever like I don't know, experience that where you're like, oh, this is awful. And then it turns out where you find it magical. Definitely. I mean, I hate everything that I release personally. Like I have a very critical perfectionist backwards gaze most of the time where I just always kind of just want to move on to the next thing and not really pay attention to anything that I've done in the past because it always is just too cringy type of thing. But I would say that with Mind Palace music, like while we were making it, I feel like it was like, not super conscious, but a little bit conscious of a choice to make it like not super adorned and pretty song focused, like really just song, 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 idea, 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 like not a lot of, uh, goop in there, you know, just like pretty, uh, simple and direct. And I think that as a consequence of that, I cringe at it way less because it's just, there's just not that much to cringe at really. It's just a bunch of acoustic guitars and flutes and stuff. So it doesn't really feel as, um, I guess dated or flawed as some of the stuff I've done in the past that maybe was more going for something a little bit more esoteric, uh, texturally. What, what tends to make you cringe? Can you, is there like specific elements? And, and um, yeah, just bad songwriting. <laughs> what go on? Oh, I was just curious. And then also how, how you get past it. Um, I mean, I don't personally, I, I, I just try to like divert my gaze away from it, you know, and move <laughs> forward, you know? Right. I just, you know, I guess, I think it's a Sylvia Plath thing. It was like the, the biggest, uh, enemy of creativity is like the voices in your head. I totally paraphrased and fucked that up. <laughs> no, that makes definitely intuitive sense though. But yeah. And that's like, I don't know, always been my personal struggle of like, maybe, just sticking through and fighting it to some degree and seeing if I could get through it. So I, uh, but then sometimes it's, it is, it's total shit and you just got to (laughs) go. 
If I'm ever cringing at something, it's always retrospectively. Like, I'm never, like, trying to push through anything that I already don't like, that my tastes might change or my perspective on a certain song or, I don't know, thing I've created or written uh, might change later on, you know? Uh-huh. Especially, there's a lot of stuff I wrote in my early 20s that I very rarely ever go back to or want to think about. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there was some, like, I don't know. I cringe really hard at like anything that was trying to be too edgy, you know, like it's a little too punk or a little too edge lordy, like whether that's through a, through subject matter, like profanity or whatever, or just like in the textures trying to be like super blown out and harsh. Like those are, I think the things that I look back on and go like, okay, like maybe those weren't the, you know, the most like uh, lasting choices that could have been made on those, on those tracks, you know, cause they, they feel like the work of a, you know, a teenage edgelord essentially. And that's what really makes me cringe. Oh yeah. I think that's what's my generation. Like the, my early twenties, there was really no way of capturing anything. It was too expensive unless it was an audio cassette tape recorder. Yeah. Yeah. But if that stuff was on the internet, I would, I would be living in Guam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. That's how I feel about a lot of it. Yeah. It's just, it's just, I mean, but it's also so magical that we got to grow up with, recording technology and that's that's the only way at would have ever existed is because we got to individually kind of become proficient in music production like on our own with just our own personal computers or whatever and that wouldn't have been possible you know even as recently as like 10 or 20 years ago so yeah Yeah. the potential that allows for i mean i do wish i would have been able to learn how to edit and shoot things and and that's like, which also mystifies me because I feel like there should be a lot more greater, better films out there. <laughs> I'm like, hey, if everybody yeah. can make movies, why do we keep getting the same movies? Yeah. Because people are making TikToks and not movies, right? <laughs> yeah. So, man, I wonder what Cassavetti's... Well, how do we get a movie seen and shown? It's much more expensive than just throwing your music up online. Right, Yeah. 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 I think Ian Svanoni said something about that, like about how people say that film is the ultimate like art medium, but really it's the rock album because it's so much more accessible to the common person to make a rock album and make the art and the music and the visuals. And it's way more, way more accessible and approachable than like an entire feature film, which is out of reach of basically everybody <laughs> in a very yeah. small percentage of the population. It's, it's almost impossible to shoot. I'm shooting a thing this weekend and it's like, 10 minutes and it's like a fucking unholy nightmare <laughs> cool were you surprised by the the way people responded to this album and then how did it get to car park um i don't know if i was surprised only because i think originally it was well no i was grateful but i guess um, yeah, and maybe i was surprised i guess i didn't know that like we could just start up this like unknown project and get so much attention from it from just sharing a couple of times on Instagram. Um, in terms of car park, they just, I think someone from car park had heard our music and ended up reaching out to us about it. Um, last year at some point, maybe in the springtime. Yeah. Yeah. It was just word of mouth from, from what I uh, heard. It was just like somebody passed them the music and they liked it. Was that, yeah, I'm sorry. If oh, I was just, were you surprised by that at all? Or was that sort of, I was definitely surprised. I was astounded really. I mean, I, I had kind of come up in this like kind of DIY punk world where that just never happens really, you know? And I had had plenty of conversations with my friends over the years about like how like the dream of getting signed, but like discovered and signed by a label was just like dead now. And that's like an unrealistic expectation and stuff like that. So for my, for my part of it, I was very surprised for sure especially because we hadn't even played any shows or anything like that. This is true. And they came with a, came to us with a really good deal, which is really just a contract to just release this one record we had already made. So there was like very little that we had to do in terms of like creation in order to sign with them. Is it, was there still a reluctance, like you were saying, coming from the DIY punk world is there was there a reluctance to go with the label 
And is that, mm-hmm. did, did you avoid more labels before this with other um, your other own projects? We had definitely had some, well, I don't know. I think it's mixed with our own projects in the past. I've worked with some smaller labels uh, and I think Victoria has as well, like small DIY labels and stuff like that. Um, never anything is Vegas car park, but, um, sorry, I forgot the first half of the question. <laughs> was the reluctance. Oh, was there reluctance? I just think car park. I mean, I'm from Baltimore and so many of the bands on car parks, like legacy roster are like, sick classic Baltimore bands, you know? Mm-hmm. So I felt just really excited. I mean, I think, I think that gave it some credibility for me where I just didn't really feel like it was that different from any type of DIY labels we had worked with in the past. And so there wasn't that much reluctance for me. And like, as a question, a side question, I was curious because it came out on cassette and I was, I keep, like it seems like almost every week I discover a label, and I'm I'm not saying uh, I'm not that hip in the cassette world. But why do you think there are all these labels now, and these even like smaller indie labels? Like one idea with a lot is Perpetual Doom, and they've released stuff on vinyl, but it's like extremely indie, and there seems to be a lot more indie labels than ever before. And I was wondering if you could speak to the culture of that and why that seems to be happening more and more don't know <laughs> i think it's just accessible to get into now in a way that it maybe wasn't in the past like you don't need to buy like a, a tape dubber machine like a big contraption that dubs them high speed and all this stuff like you can just send out to national audio company and get your tape pro dubbed for the same price and at the same quality that a label is going to get it pro dubbed. And so there's really just, if all you're trying to do is a tape, there's really just no point in going through a big label. If you want to do it yourself or start your own label to do it or whatever you want, like the, the tools have been sort of democratized, I'd say. Uh, So that might contribute. And there's a lot of people out there who love music and love music that normally wouldn't get picked up by a larger label that want to see it put out and put out more formally who want to get involved. I think a lot of people I know that like run labels don't necessarily make a whole lot of it, the music themselves that are like very much mired in and like appreciate the music around them. For sure. Yeah. 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 Cause I was, I, it seems like that if you go that route, you definitely, I don't know. I don't want to say you're straight, uh, avidly avoiding the mainstream, but is there just sort of more of a, let's just fucking do it to do it type of attitude and not give a shit what the end result is. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in general it's, it's almost impossible, you know, for most people in music now to make any kind of substantial living off of their craft. Um, and so I think it's a lot more about getting your art out there. I mean, there are some people that are trying to make it into a career or like trying to make money off of touring or whatever it might be. Some people want to get famous and have goals, but I think they're very much like more expression oriented. Like there's people who I think most people that put the music out, the end is just to have the music out and reach as many people as uh, they can. And in more of an artistic way than necessarily trying to make money. I can't speak for everybody. There's obviously a lot of like larger bands that have been successful relatively, but even if you're big, even if you're famous, you don't make a lot of money. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, from some of the people I've talked to who have some who are like at it for 30 years still have side hustles. And I'm like, are you fucking yeah. kidding? <laughs> it's like, I don't want to name yeah. names. Cause I don't want to be like, Hey, so-and-so has to, work at a car wash but it's like it's insane to me it's if you're of a almost legendary status in indie rock for sure i mean i had the experience of being like you know 19 20 21 and being lucky enough to play shows with bands that i really idolized that were like basically yeah like legend status in like say like noise rock or experimental music or whatever and realizing after kind of getting to know these people a little bit that they all had day jobs like you know, like this thing that I had idealized so much and put on such a pinnacle was never going to pay the bills ever, you know? And so like, <laughs> I don't know, that just like worked really well to form my worldview that I already kind of had coming from my family of just like, you can be an artist, but like artists all do something else. You know, you have to like support your art somehow basically. And like, 
so it all kind of made sense to me. Like there's this really like strong tradition of like DIY music and sort of like working class musicians and stuff like that. And just people got to have jobs and that's just how it is, you know? So yep. I don't know. That's kind of how I see it all. Do you come from like a working class art artsy background, like folks? I mean, kind of like, I mean, that, that nugget of wisdom came from like my grandpa who was like, yeah, super working class and kind of made a lot of art in his youth and ended up kind of working different jobs over his career and stuff. And, he had a really high view of the arts, but he also just had a really grounded view of like, you know, you can make art, but you also got to do something different. And I think that that carries over really well into what I've seen in my own life with DIY artists and all these like, yeah, legendary people whom I really respect, but they all work jobs still, you know? Yeah. I, was, I came from a working class family too, and no one was creative. So the fact that I wasn't making money at it, in their eyes was a failure. <laughs> Not, I knew they didn't understand it, but also you, you, you carry that. Cause you're like, Oh, well, I guess I'm not, you know, there's that make your living sort of mentality. Yeah. And to have to schlep and do something, you know, sometimes like wash dishes, there's, yeah. there's like a demeaning sort of quality to it. It's all bullshit. And, but, but it's interesting yeah. to me. Did you have, what was your background, Victoria? My background? Um, not a lot of arts in my family. Um, say not, uh, I'm, I don't know, working class, kind of, a little bit, probably more like white collar. My mom's a teacher. My dad's a programmer, but there was just not a lot of, um, uh, yeah, like they were always very supportive of like my artistic pursuits, but it was never an expectation of mine that I would ever be making any kind of living off of that. Um, mostly because I didn't know what I wanted to do for a long time. And I had always been making music and playing music, but I had this idea growing up that, you know, unless you're very, very lucky, you don't make music from this. And it's just not something I like wanted to pursue in any sort of serious career kind of way. So I, I set my focus on, you know, having a stable job that I enjoyed and could do, and then also work on music outside of that, which feels great. I love that. Yeah. See, I fucked up. I didn't have a B plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, this like art was always my like C plan. So. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I can bartend, but when you hit a certain age, there's only so many drunk people you want to break up from fights. <laughs> at my last bar job i was like i can't i gotta i'll i'll work anywhere but this yeah did stone did you were there for both of you key moments when you're like okay there's no this is it i'm an artist i'm a musician i have to this is what i'm gonna do regardless hmm. i'm not sure i mean for me i had a lot of music in my family luckily my um my grandma on my mom's side is Croatian big into the kind of Croatian music world. And that's how she met my grandpa too. He was also a musician and they would play together. They went on tour and were like kind of semi-professionals in their like youth. Um, and so I was lucky enough to go to like family parties where there was just traditional Croatian music being played and dancing and singing and everybody singing all together, friends and family and stuff like that. And so, I kind of had it around me a lot as a kid, but I didn't really do it myself until maybe I think I started playing guitar at like 11 and that was my first real like musical instrument that I got super into. But after that, it just became the only thing that I really wanted to do. It just, it consumed everything. Like I just stopped doing everything else. I was into like skateboarding before that and, and a couple of sports and stuff. But after I found music, it was just such a good fit for me that it's just all I've really wanted to do ever since kind of. Was it DIY punk that sort of got you into music or like a turning point? Um, it was a turning point for sure in the sense that it made me feel like I could just be a part of it right away and not have to like go through any type of industry bullshit or jump through any type of weird hoops in order to just participate and play shows and book shows and just do what I wanted to do. You know, I was lucky enough to go to be able to go to like DIY shows in Baltimore, um, from a pretty early age. Like I think I started going around when I was like 16 to shows fairly frequently. And, um, yeah, it was a turning point in that it just gave me something to 
look up to and like shoot for, you know, something very attainable, just, Oh, I can just play a show on this block or like book a show here or whatever, you know? It's wild that the DIY scene, which is like 40 years now, maybe more. And it's still that influential. Yeah. Like in, oh, yeah. in cause I know a lot of Chicago musicians still, and it's very much still that way. And Chicago's always been like, fuck you. I'll put a show up in a, bar <laughs> it's like it's it's incredible that that still is so i don't know prominent in the music scenes who were do you remember who some of the bands you saw in back in baltimore oh yeah i mean like like this band double dagger from baltimore was playing a lot of shows at that time and they were completely mind-blowing and they broke up right as i kind of got into them so that was just like legendary for me i got to go to their farewell show and stuff and it was just like the coolest thing ever. Um, and yeah, I don't know. There's just been tons of classic Baltimore bands really. But at that time I was more seeing like hardcore and punk stuff. So, um, I don't know, some big names that, that, that people might know were like, I got to play the show with like uh, ceremony and Joyce Manor. Wow. And, um, but I got on that show, I was like 16 or 17 and working at this coffee shop. And the dude who was booking the show would come into the coffee shop. He was like a regular cause he like went to college close by or something. And we got to talking about music cause he could see I was like this like little punk kid or whatever. And I gave him like a CD of like some crappy like demo tunes I had made. And it was just like this random thing like, Oh, this cool punk guy, I'm giving you my demo tape or whatever. And a couple of days later he was just like, Hey, this band dropped off this show tonight at terms of the art space. Like, do you want to like do it? Or maybe it was the next day or something like that, but super last minute. And I was like, yeah, for sure. This is awesome. And it turned out to be Ceremony and Joyce Manor, whom I didn't know at the time, but now like however many years later, I still listen to both those bands. And I think they're like amazing, legendary kind of bands for what they do. So, um, yeah, that was a super, super fortunate and, um, formative moment. Have you, had you done a lot of live shows up to that point? Um, kinda, but not really in like original music so much, you know, I had done some stuff with like, you know, like after school, like music programs and you do some performances and stuff like that, but nothing that was really like super like personal or legit or creative or anything like that. Was it, did you feel like it was a pressure moment or did you just go into it with that youthful, I don't give a fuck, which I wish I still had. (laughs) It felt pretty, I don't give a fuck. I mean, it, it just like, I didn't, I didn't really feel like there was that much time to get super like freaked out about it or anything. And it, it didn't even really have a band at the time. It was literally just this like crappy demo tape, you know? So like, I just got like my brother and my friend to just like back me up at the show and like play the tracks from the demo tape type of thing, you know? So like, um, I don't know. It was pretty like ramshackle and I just thought it was really fun, you know? And it's one of the first times in my life I saw like a legit, like, hardcore show mosh pit type of thing and so it was really exciting did you jump into that mosh pit oh yeah i used to love jumping in the pit at the charm sea art space but it was when i was a teenager you know like i i stopped being comfortable with that pretty quickly after that yeah i've been hit a lot in my life so i i avoided that pretty fucking <laughs> yeah for sure that look like a, do, what do you recall your first performances victoria yeah um i didn't really have access to a music scene so first time I ever performed music, um, I guess I, well, I guess growing up, I hadn't been in some choirs and some bands facilitated through school, but the first time I performed music was this open mic. I had this guitar teacher who actually mostly would just like talk to me for like half an hour while writing down tabs to songs I wanted to learn. And then we would like practice them for about five minutes. It was awesome. Um, but the school, it was just these two guys, they were putting on this open mic at this like pizza shop on the Berlin Turnpike in Connecticut. And I was supposed to cover a Cat Power song. I think I might've been 17. And it was too hard for me at the time because I was still learning. So instead I just, for some reason, I, I quickly wrote a song. I wrote a song and I performed it in front of everybody at this thing. Um, but then I didn't perform for a few years later. I, it wasn't really... I didn't know how to access a scene. I didn't really know that that was a thing that existed um, until I met a friend of mine who started bringing me to shows. And then I understood through him that I could do some home recording. And I made my first album 
my own solo album is called Bony French Cathedrals, which is just the name of some book I found in a library. Um, and then somehow that got to like an acquaintance of mine who really loved it and wanted to put it out on tape and then set up this whole show for me in this basement called Smoky Bear Cave in Boston. And I was so nervous. I think I took like Xanax. <laughs> just performed on this like toy keyboard. And then from then on, I, I don't know. I just kept getting more shows and I was always so nervous and I'm still so nervous to perform. Um, less so, but almost every time there's a degree of that. I want to go back to the point where you didn't want to perform a Chan Marshall song. So you wrote your own song. That's pretty, <laughs> that's fucking courageous. <laughs> like you're just like, and, and what was that song? Do you recall? Uh, it's not a good song, but it was called Shells. <laughs> Sounds like a um, good song. No, it, it sounds like a Electrolane song. Something I yeah, it definitely wasn't. It was very like sappy, like teenage emotions. I don't even remember, and I had like a different singing voice too for it. But yeah, I don't know. That just kind of came out of me. I wasn't expecting that to happen. I just like I couldn't play the song, which is silly now. I feel like it's like. C, I don't know, it's like very simple chords, but I don't know, something compelled me, but I'm, I'm a little bit surprised at myself that I was able to do that then too, because I was just so shy and nervous. Does that make you think that you knew there was something in there? Like, you know, like you overcame that, obviously. So you obviously had some yeah. sense of belief in yourself. Definitely. Um, it was kind of a one-off thing. I must have, yeah. It just felt so latent. Maybe I was just feeling like... I would then, like, write and record songs. I got my first, like... I forgot my first laptop around that time and downloaded GarageBand on it and was, like, playing around with the, the program. Um, so then after that, I was, like, you know, I was excited to be able to, like, begin recording my own stuff, but... It was never anything I, like, was going to take anywhere. I mean, for a really long time, it was all very, like, intrinsic. Maybe I'd, like, record something and, like, upload it to, like, this, like, SoundCloud. And maybe, like, a couple of people would listen to it if I shared it on Facebook or something. Um, but it was just kind of to feel like I could do it because I really admired a lot of musicians that I didn't know or just like that felt really like famous to me and I was like well if I you know I'll feel good about myself if I can do this too at the time <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's how it started I just like wanted to write music so I could like I don't know be like the people I admired I suppose Mm -hmm. said something that's interesting to me and something I've been reading a little bit about lately is that you said you didn't you sang in a different voice. And yeah. I'm, well, I'm interested because singers finding their voice is, I don't know, that, that's a fascinating thing to me. And I read how Bono found, like, the influences to his f singing, whether you like him or not, I just found this point interesting, was like it was also the way people sang at, like, soccer matches and then at his church. And so it was all the, it wasn't like I was trying to sound like Frank Sinatra. It was like all these vast influences. And it fascinated me because I never thought about that sort of element being an influence to the way someone sings. Mm -hmm. And I just, and I don't know, I'm just curious if there were how perhaps either of you went about and f discovered the way you sing. Cause it seems like it has to come from some sort of truth within you. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the first few recordings I ever made or like first like albums I wrote was singing in a voice that was very much my own, but like very, I guess, unstyled or like I wasn't using a proper singing voice. Um, I was think I was just singing the notes kind of as, as a, like as I would speak them and it kind of created this interesting effect only because I think my voice is a little bit especially coming out and singing is a little bit unique or it's like can be a little shrill in that way or something 
And then I was still very self-conscious, I guess. And I then at some point a few years ago, I was just listening to a lot of music in the car, a lot of singers that had like extremely like developed unique voices. There'd be like, you know, very classic singers like Joni Mitchell or like even like Jeff Buckley or something. And I'd spend a lot of time just driving. My job required a lot of driving. So I would be singing in the car with them. And then at some point I sort of thought during a recording, why don't I, I don't know, really try to sing or like be loud and not worry about it and um, apply some of the singing techniques that I learned in choir growing up as a kid. And it's kind of how I found the voice that I use now. It's just kind of like loosening up a little bit and expressing a little bit more and a little bit louder. Singing loudly seems terrifying to me. Like I can't do <laughs> But like, cause that seems like there's a vulnerability with doing it. Mm. I feel yeah. less vulnerable when I sing loud personally. <laughs> Can you speak to that? Like why that is, or is it? Well, it depends on the, the, like, uh, what's the word? The context, the, yeah, the climate, I don't know, the <laughs> venue. Um, like I, I won't sing loud in my apartment, for example, cause I don't want my neighbors to hear, but if I'm at a show and there's an audience, like singing loud almost becomes like a, a way to be less vulnerable, you know, especially if there's others singing with you and you're blending your voices together and whatnot. I, I really love that feeling. Like there's a, there's a, like a loss of self that comes from singing loudly and with other people. Maybe I'm just feel vulnerable because I can't sing. <laughs> I, I think it's vulnerable to be trying anything that you don't feel confident about. Yeah. I just, I admire that skill almost I, probably more than anything in music. Cause it just seems, I don't know, like a saxophone or a guitar you have, it's something you could, I don't know. It just seems more vulnerable. It's just, it's purely you if you're singing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also easier because there's nothing to plug in. And I hate <laughs> all that. <laughs> it's overwhelming. Uh, I don't. It, one of the things I really love about the songs I heard from you all is the harmonies, and I was wondering what har, what influences you have harmony wise. Probably could have been a better articulated question. Forgive me. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, at least, very specifically at that time, I was listening a whole lot to the album Tusk by Fleetwood Mac because um, it was so weird but I noticed a lot of like vocal pads that Lindsey Buckingham would write in the background of songs that were these very like flashing harmonies or these long drawn out harmonies that were meant as like a texture and those are extremely beautiful and interesting to me um, so that's when I started to become like really interested in harmony as a tool in, in music recording. But I think also just in terms of the way that we were connecting musically is like Stone is extremely proficient at a lot of instruments. And I mostly am a guitarist and a singer. So whenever he would sing tracks, send tracks to me that he had written, I felt more confident contributing vocals to the tracks than anything else. And that would in involve just adding these vocal harmonies. Um, I guess it's not an influence. It's just kind of how it happened for me, at least on my end. And then we found that our voices blended really well. I don't know, Stone, do you have any specific influences? Um, yeah, I mean, for this album, I'd say there's a lot of the kind of classic stuff like the Beatles and the Beach Boys and Cosby Stills Nash, that type of stuff, I think was big for all the like three parts we added and la la la's and stuff like that. Um, definitely kind of sixties throwback I'd say, but then there's also like a little bit of maybe something a little bit more minimal or avant-garde or something, um, in the harmonies specifically when there's like really close harmonies, like not using thirds and fifths, but using like a second, 
like yeah. a major or a minor second. There's a few different parts on the on the album that have those really more rubbing dissonant type of harmonies, and that's kind of I don't know if that's any from anything in particular. I mean, there is like a lot of like Hungarian and Bulgarian music that does that, and there's also a lot of more popular music that does that. But I, I do think that that's something that comes up a lot on Mind Palace music, like those close rubbing seconds. Yeah, I actually, for me, whenever I was contributing those those seconds there, um, I kind of actually there's a very specific influences when I was doing choir younger as a kid. Um, our choir teacher's husband was a composer. And she would have us sing his pieces and they were all of the, all these pieces that he wrote would be these like very rhythmically simple compositions with a ton of drawn out those harmonies on them. And that's not something I ever knew could happen. And then I decided to, I just kind of never let go of that sound. Did the, uh, do you think the process would have been drastically different if you would have been able to work on it? together in like the same room or in the same time never would have happened yeah it really like the only reason this happened is because you two were in separate cities Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. i mean it was a time period right it was the pandemic neither of us were going to work every day type of thing like life was all crazy and topsy-turvy and we had the time to be working on this thing like it it pretty legitimately wouldn't have ever happened in real life, I don't think. Did the the process of, because you said you discovered, like, and often creative processes, there's these moments of discovery. Do you, do you think that this way of working inspired more discovery than, say, didn't? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because yeah. we have the privacy of having the tracks and then working on them by ourselves without any other ears on them. So there's a lot more experimentation that could go on with arranging. Yeah. Did it also allow it to be more methodical? Definitely. 100%. Yeah, I mean, when you're playing live with a band, it's so much more of a, like, everybody all together trying to trying to get something out that works and, I don't know, playing as a team. And when you record that way, you're so much more thinking about good takes and, and tempos and stuff like that. I don't know. When you're, when you're recording just by yourself in your room and layering up tracks and overdubs the way that we made Mind Palace music, it can be as meticulous as you want it to be. You can either do it in one take and leave it forever or do a million takes. And, and, you know, through the making of Mind Palace music, both of those methods were used. Do you plan on doing another album? Is that like a, Mm -hmm. would you, will you do it the same approach? I don't know. Yeah. um, We've talked about both. Yeah, I mean, since since all since the album got made, we have sort of become a live band as well because we've played, you know, a fair handful of shows at this point with our live band that we've assembled, and so we are kind of like a real band at this point. So we might incorporate some of that style of working on the new album, or it might turn out to just be all remote. Like we'll have to see what works. Yeah, I mean, currently, at least I've been kind of compiling a handful of songs I'd like to use for, but I haven't quite recorded them just yet. I'm finishing up some lyrics and some sections, but I don't know yet. Yeah. I think, I don't know yet what, how it's going to go beyond that. Just kind of on the independent side of it right now. (laughs) At least from, I feel like there's a bit of anticipation for this album. Do you sense that? Like I've seen blogs and people seem to be like, I was just curious how you feel about that. For the first album? For Mind Palace Music? Yeah. For, yeah. The, yeah. for the car park release. Right. There's a lot of people who want the music back. <laughs> <laughs> We're anticipating being able to listen to it again. Oh, because it's because they did they have you take it down? Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of people who, I mean, I would say like as as much as, it reached a good number of people. There are still a lot of people who haven't heard of us at all. And so it was just in order to kind of create a more proper release. Um, and just, uh, you know, reach more people at once with a more of a standard release structure. We took it down. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like it's, it's great. Like, I just sort of feel like it, gonna be very popular i sound that sounds fucking corny i know 
and I don't want to sound corny, but it's like, it's so good. And in, like, I keep listening to it. I can't stop listening to it. And that doesn't happen a lot where I get that obsessive over music. Do you, Maybe. that's so sweet of you. Thank you so much for saying that. Oh, I'm just telling you my experience. <laughs> yeah Good to hear. There's we're some, gonna we'll see i mean i was i sent uh some of the songs to a, a friends of mine which is usually mm-hmm. a good sign if i just keep telling people they need to listen to something but something that really i'm because where'd you where'd you put me is i think it's a minute and 12 seconds mm-hmm. and it's one of those songs that you, when you it starts you're into it like i was like oh and then it, ends because it's a minute and 12 seconds which i think is the great thing about it because you're like i want more (laughs) (laughs) so you go back and listen to it but i was like is that a conscious choice to make a song that long or short no No? it's just that was the organic process of it sorry organic process of it i wrote that song really quickly i had recorded a longer song and then just had the program still up and then I don't know. I think I just like was sitting with my guitar and came up with that riff, that repetitive riff, and then just sang and 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 recorded it really quickly, like within an hour, maybe. It was pretty much done. Um, and I didn't really take the time in that case to like develop it into something longer. I just kind of recorded it, sent it to Stone. He was like, great, let me put some stuff on it. And it was done. But it's not conscious. Just kind of like that's what happened with that one song. Yeah. I just I've always loved very quick songs like that because it does sort of leave you wanting more. And I don't know. But then Definitely. it also makes you curious about everything else on the album because that was the first song I heard, and I was like, all right, I got to know everything y'all do. That's great. Yeah, I mean, and on the album, that's the only really short one, I think. So it's not like all the songs are that short. It's pretty much yeah. a yes album. Most of the songs are 15 minutes long, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there are a couple songs. I mean, there are some songs that go out like that are around like two minutes long, which isn't, I would consider still pretty short. Yeah. Um, a little bit more standard. I think it's great, but I do think that... <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed this, but like songs are getting shorter. I have noticed that. Do you? Yeah. And I heard, I saw Sting bitching about how no one does bridges anymore. And I'm like, that's okay. Mm. Like he was upset about it. I'm like, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. People can do that if they want to. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. No, we have And the function of, the purpose of music has changed so much. You know, so much of what's driving those short songs is like they're using TikToks and these very short form type of media. And like, I don't know if that's what the music's getting used for, then it should be short, you know, like but I think people TikTok- aren't listening to that for song structure. Really? TikTok's a demonic place. <laughs> to be honest. I mean, not to say, I mean, I guess I'm not old, but I've seen a lot of social media and TikTok is deranged. And if people are making music to sell off of there, yeah, I think that's, I don't know, marketing pad, but that's just my own opinion. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not in favor of the short song thing necessarily because I love song structure and song craft and composition yeah. and all these different things. And I love a good bridge, you know? So I'm, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not really defending it so much as just sort of trying to like look at it soberly and be like, yeah, it's just a, a function of how it's being used out in the world, you know? Yeah. Are you going to tour, by the way? Or like you do a bigger tour or is it not? Maybe. I don't know. We're kind of yeah. waiting for a neutral milk hotel to ask us to open for them. So, yeah. No. Is that a joke or are they going to tour? It is. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting for that because they did, they played the Hollywood bowl like 10 or 15 years ago. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what their status is. I haven't been in touch with them, but if anybody knows them, that's the, that's the email we're waiting on to get us out on the road. Really? That's who you want. Okay. Who, I mean, else, who else would you be down for? Touring with? Like a dream. Oh, dream. Hmm. I don't know. Who am I listening to? That's crazy. Hold on a second. I don't know. I would Maybe. definitely go way legacy with this one. Yeah. yeah. Full dream. The Red Hot Chili Peppers. Sorry. <laughs> I used to see Flea everywhere. Actually, used to see. <sighs> 
are you really a fan of his? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I was yeah. in a grocery store and some guy was yelling next to me. And he was like, hey, hey, do we need carrots? Carrots. And I turn to the left of me and it's Flea yelling to his wife across the grocery oh store. Was it like, was it nice? Yeah, he just was trying to get her attention while she shopped for... Yeah. No, he's, yeah. he seems like a nice guy in the grocery store. Like from what I... Good. Okay. Are you cool. really a chili? Because I, I feel like, and I'm not like bagging on the chili peppers and I don't bag on bands. I don't, I'm not that guy. Yeah. No, seriously. Yeah. Because they're awesome because they love each other and they love music there and they're so go. fun and they don't make it. They're never, uh, they're never ironic or like, I don't know. They just, it's so pure. Stone, how are you with the chili peppers? They're great. I mean, you know, it's not like I like everything they've ever released or anything like that, but they have some classic jams that were like, you know, really, really big parts of my childhood. I used to hear like Suck My Kiss on the radio and Back My Mom's Car or whatever, and it was a great jam. Yeah. I just think it's like weird, like certain bands get to a certain level and then all of a sudden everybody just is like, they suck. And I'm like, there's a reason they're this fucking big. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I've been on a big Sammy Davis Jr. like binge lately and like, learning about his life and I did it with Elvis not because of the Elvis movie it's like once you learn about these guys who are this iconic and you learn the layers and complexity of actually who they are it's fucking fascinating like people think of Sammy Davis as like the Jim Carrey impression it's like this dude was a complex dude who performed professionally since he was three and the dude could play like five different instruments incredibly dance act and I think he sang better than fucking Frank Sinatra. Wow. Like, yeah. he had more depth. And he, like, marched with Martin Luther King. Like, he was, like, not just some schmaltzy showbiz guy. He was, like, a very active... I don't know. Sorry, I went on a Sammy Davis bend. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's really easy to kind of reduce people's, uh, I guess, like, careers or artistic expression to just kind of, like, the biggest most popular perception of them or like really reduce them to a caricature. I mean, obviously, and like not actually end up looking at them critically or artistically, but just be like looking at their popularity. I I think if the Chili Peppers had like stopped making music after maybe Buzzfeed or Sex Magic or maybe even by the way, or a later album like that, like they would be considered like a legendary punk band, you know, in my opinion. I agree. Did, do you but want- I don't think they didn't stop because they're still so like I don't know they just love what they do it's so clear it's so clear definitely I, no, I don't want them to stop I think it's cool that they're like you know the age that they are and still rocking out I think it's awesome I just think yeah, yeah he's like 60 and that dude could kick anybody's ass he's like yeah it's sure. like insane yeah did it's you really- like their new album um you know yeah enough you know, it's, it's sometimes it's not really about the music for me. Yes, I did like some songs in the context of knowing, like, about the band and kind of where they are in their career. It was okay. Good music. I do that. Um, I have those bands, too, where it's like I liked them when I was very young, and so I yeah. will see what they do, even if some of it is... Because I feel like when they get that big, they get overly produced. And it gets... Mm-hmm. Like, it detracts from what I liked about them originally. Yeah. I think that happens with those huge, huge labels. They want that kind of control, the hermetic seal on the music. And we'll come back in 20 years and we'll talk again and we'll see where you guys are. <laughs> we'll be fighting for water. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you can move in with us in Minnesota. That sounds great. <laughs> Yeah. I got a cousin in Win- Winnipeg. I wouldn't mind getting up that direction later in life. <laughs> how is the East Coast? How are your neighborhoods with climate? Do you see it in your states? Like, is it? Yeah, I mean, here in Baltimore, it just hasn't snowed all year. And for the past couple of years, there's been barely any snow. Whereas when I was a child, there was plenty of snow, you know? So just stuff like that. Yeah. It's wetter. A certain, you know, I work in, um, work in the outdoors a lot and I work as a beekeeper. So what you notice also is like with the climate change, you notice certain like pests or like insects and smaller animals migrating 
more north and causing problems in areas they hadn't previously been. Wow. There's more ticks. Like apparently, you know, in the eighties, no ticks in Vermont, for instance, and now they're reaching. So there's like, you know, Lyme disease up and down the coast where that you didn't used to be the case. Wow. That's, that's actually, I've been worried about ticks in Minnesota just because I know. Get there. Lucky me. Lucky me.